Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Cross-legged in the examining chair in Doc Vickerson's office, a boy was reading Grey's Anatomy. His name was Martin Arrowsmith of Elk Mills in the state of Winnemac. There was a suspicion in Elk Mills now in 1897, a dody red brick village smelling of apples, that this brown leather adjustable seat, which Doc Vickerson used for minor operations, for the infrequent pulling of teeth or highly frequent naps, had begun life as a barber's chair. There was also a belief that its proprietor must once have been called Dr. Vickerson, but for years he had been only the doc, and he was scruffier and much less adjustable than the chair. Martin was the son of J.J. Arrowsmith, who conducted the New York Clothing Bazaar. By sheer brass and obstinacy, he had, at 14, become the unofficial, also decidedly unpaid, assistant to the doc, and while the doc was on a country call, he took charge though what there was to take charge of no one could ever make out. He was a slender boy, not very tall. His hair and restless eyes were black, his skin unusually white, and the contrast gave him an air of passionate variability. The squareness of his head and the reasonable breadth of his shoulders saved him from any appearance of effeminacy or of that querulous timidity which artistic young gentlemen call sensitiveness. When he lifted his head to listen, his right eyebrow, slightly higher than the left one, rose and quivered in his characteristic expression of energy, of independence, and a hint that he could fight. A look of impertinent inquiry, which had been known to annoy his teachers and the Sunday school superintendent. Martin was, like most inhabitants of Elk Mills, before the Slavo-Italian immigration, a typical purebred Anglo-Saxon American which means that his union of German, French, Scottish, Irish, and perhaps a little Spanish, and a great deal of English, which in itself a combination of primitive Britain, Celt, Phoenician, Roman, German, Dane, and Swede. It is not certain that, in attaching himself to Doc Vickerson, Martin was entirely and edifyingly controlled by desire to become a great healer. He did all his gang by bandaging stone bruises, dissecting squirrels, and explaining the outstanding and secret matters to be discovered at the back of the physiology. But he was not completely free from his ambition to command such glory among them, as was enjoyed by the son of the Escapalian minister, who could smoke an entire cigar without becoming sick. Yet this afternoon he read steadily at the section on the lymphatic system, and he muttered the long and perfectly incomprehensible words in a hum, which made drowsier the dusty room. It was the central room of the three occupied by Doc Vickerson, facing on Main Street, above the New York Clothing Bazaar. On one side of it was the foul waiting room, on the other, the Doc's bedroom. He was an aged widower, for what he called female fixings, he cared nothing. And the bedroom with its tottering bureau and its cot of frowsy blankets was cleaned only by Martin, in not very frequent attacks of sanitation. This central room was at once business office, consultation room, living room, poker den, and warehouse for guns and fishing tackle. Against a brown plaster wall was a cabinet of zoological collections and medical curiosities, 
and besides it, the most dreadful and fascinating object known to the boy world of Elk Mills, a skeleton with one gaunt gold tooth. On evenings when the dock was away, Martin would acquire prestige among the trembling gang by leading them into the unutterable darkness and scratching a sulphur match on the skeleton's jaw. On the wall was a home-stuffed pickerel on a home-varnished board. Beside the rusty stove, a sawdust box cuspidor rested on a slimy oilcloth worn through to the threads. On the senile table was a pile of memoranda of debts, which the doc was always swearing he would collect from those deadbeats right now, and which he would never, by any chance, at any time, collect from any of them. A year or two, a decade or two, a century or two, they were all the same to the plodding doctor in the bee-murmuring town. The most unsanitary corner was devoted to the cast-iron sink, which was oftener used for washing eggy breakfast plates than for sterilising instruments. On its ledge were a broken test tube, a broken fish hook, and an unlabeled and forgotten bottle of pills. A nail-brushing heel, a frayed cigar butt, and a rusty lancet stuck in a potato. The wild raggedness of the room was the soul and symbol of Doc Vickerson. It was more exciting than the flat-faced stack of shoeboxes in the New York Bazaar. It was the lure to questioning and adventure for Martin Arrowsmith. The boy raised his head, cocked his inquisitive brow. On the stairway was the cumbersome step of Doc Vickerson. The Doc was sober. Martin would not have to help him into bed. But it was a bad sign that the Doc should first go down the hall to his bedroom. The boy listened sharply. He heard the Doc open the lower part of the washstand, where he kept his bottle of Jamaican rum. After a long gurgle, the invisible Doc put away the bottle and decisively kicked the door shut. Still good, only one drink. If he came into the consultation room at once, he would be safe. But he was still standing in the bedroom. Martin sighed as the washstand doors were hastily opened again, as he heard another gurgle and a third. The Doc's step was much livelier when he loomed into the office. A grey mass of a man with a grey mass of a moustache. A form vast and unreal and undefined. Like a cloud, taking for the moment like a harness of humanity. With the brisk attack of one who wishes to escape the discussion of his guilt, the Doc rumbled while he waddled towards his desk chair. What are you doing here, young fella? I knew the cat would drag in something if I left the door unlocked. He gulped slightly. He smiled to show that he was being humorous. People had been known to misconstrue the doc's humour. He spoke more seriously, occasionally forgetting what he was talking about. Reading Old Grey? That's right. Physician's Library, just three books. Grey's Anatomy, and the Bible, and Shakespeare. Study. You may become a great doctor. Locate in Zenith and make $5,000 a year, as much as a United States Senator. Set a high goal. Don't let things slide. Go to college before medical school, study chemistry, Latin, knowledge. The boy, normal village youngster though he was, giving to stoning cats and playing pom-pom pull-away, gained something of the intoxication of treasure hunting as the doc struggled to convey his vision in the pride of learning. The universality of biology, the triumphant exactness of chemistry, a fat old man and dirty and unvirtuous was the doc. His grammar was doubtful his vocabulary alarming, and his references to his rival, good Dr. Needham, were scandalous. 
yet he invoked in Martin a vision of making chemicals explode with much noise and stink, and of seeing animalcules that no boy in Elk Mills had ever beheld. The doc's voice was thickening. He was sunk in his chair, blurry of the eye and lax of the mouth. Martin begged him to go to bed, but the doc insisted. A hundred times had Martin obediently looked at the specimens in the brown, crackly, varnished bookcase. The beetles and chunks of mica, the embryo of a two-headed calf, the gallstones removed from a respectable lady whom the doc enthusiastically named to all visitors. The doc stood before the case, waving an enormous but shaky forefinger. Look at that butterfly. Name is Porthisa Chrysoria. Doc Needham couldn't tell you that. He doesn't know what butterflies are called. He doesn't care if you get trained. Remember that name now. He turned on Martin. You paying attention? You interested her? Oh, the devil. Nobody wants to know about my museum. Not a person. Martin asserted. Honest, it's slick. You see that in the bottle? It's an appendix. First one ever took out round here. I did it. Old Doc Vickerson. He did the first pendoctomy in this neck of the woods, you bet. It ain't so big, but it's a start. I haven't put money away like Doc Needham, but I started my first collection. He collapsed in a chair, groaning. But as Martin helped him to his feet, he broke away, scrabbled about his desk, and looked back doubtfully. I want to give you something to start your training, and remember the old man. He was holding out the beloved magnifying glass, which for years he had used in botanizing. He watched Martin slip the lens into his pocket. He sighed. He struggled for something else to say and silently, he lumbered into his bedroom. In 1904, when Martin Arrowsmith was an arts and science junior preparing for medical school, Winnemac had but 5,000 students, yet it was already brisk. Martin was 21. He still seemed pale, in contrast to his black smooth hair, but he was a respectable runner, a fair basketball centre, and a savage hockey player. The coeds murmured that he looked so romantic, they merely talked about him at a distance, and he did not know that he could have been a hero of armours. For all his stubbornness, he was shy. He was not entirely ignorant of caresses, but he didn't make an occupation of them. He consorted with men whose viral pride it was to smoke filthy corncob pipes and to wear filthy sweaters. The university had become his world. For him, Elk Mills did not exist. Doc Vickerson was dead and buried and forgotten. Martin's father and mother were dead, leaving him only enough money for his arts and medical courses. The purpose of life was chemistry and physics and the prospect of biology next year. His idol was Professor Edward Edwards, head of the Department of Chemistry, who was universally known as Encore. Edwards' knowledge of the history of chemistry was immense. He could read Arabic and he infuriated his fellow chemists by asserting that the Arabs had anticipated all their researches. Himself, Professor Edwards, never did researches. He sat before fires and stroked his collie and chuckled in his beard. This evening, Uncle was giving one of his small and popular at-homes. He lolled in a brown corduroy Morris chair, being quietly humorous for the benefit of Martin and half a dozen other fanatical young chemists, and baiting Dr. Norman Brumfit, the instructor in English. The room was full of heartiness and beer and Brumfit. Every university must have a wild man to provide thrills and to shock crowded lecture rooms. Even in so energetically virtuous an institution as Winnemac, there was one wild man, and he was Norman Brumfit. 
he was permitted, without restriction, to speak of himself as immoral, agnostic, and socialistic, so long as it was universally known that he remained pure, Presbyterian, and Republican. Dr. Brumfitt was informed tonight. This led to the mention of Max Gottlieb, professor of bacteriology in the medical school. Professor Gottlieb was the mystery of the university. He rarely left his small brown weedy house except to return to his laboratory, and few students outside his classes had ever identified him, but everyone had heard of his tall, lean, dark aloofness. A thousand fables fluttered about him. It was believed that he was the son of a German prince, and that he had immense wealth, and he lived as sparsely as the other professors, only because he was doing terrifyingly and costly experiments, which probably had something to do with human sacrifice. It was said that he could create life in the laboratory, that he could talk with the monkeys which he inoculated, and that he secretly drank real champagne every evening at dinner. It was the tradition that faculty members did not discuss their colleagues with students, but Max Gottlieb could not be regarded as anybody's colleague. He was impersonal as the chill northeast wind, Dr. Brumfitt rattled. I'm sufficiently liberal, I should assume, towards the claims of science, but with a man like Gottlieb, I'm prepared to believe that he knows all about material forces. But what astounds me is that such a man can be blind to the vital force that creates all others. He says that knowledge is worthless unless it's proven by rows of figures. Well, when one of you science sharks can talk the genius of a Ben Johnson and measure it with a yardstick, then I'll admit that we literary chaps with our doubtless absurd beliefs in beauty and loyalty and the world of dreams are off on the wrong track. Martin Arrowsmith was not exactly certain what this meant, and he enthusiastically did not care. He was relieved when Professor Edwards from the mist of his beardlessness and smokiness made a sound curiosity like, oh hell, and took the conversation away from Brumfit. Ordinarily, Encore would have suggested, with amiable malice, that Gottlieb wasted time destroying the theories of other men instead of making new ones of his own. But tonight, in distaste for such literary playboys as Brumfit, he exalted Gottlieb's long, lonely, failure-burdened effort to synthesise antitoxin, and his diabolic pleasure in disproving his own contentions. He spoke of Gottlieb's great book, Immunology, which had been read by seven-ninths of all the men in the world who could possibly understand it, the number of those being nine. The party ended with Mrs. Edwards's celebrated donuts. Martin tramped towards his boarding house through a veiled spring night. The discussion of Gottlieb had roused him into a reasonless excitement. He thought of working in a laboratory at night, alone, absorbed, contemptuous of academic success and of popular classes. Himself, he believed, he had never seen the man. But he knew that Gottlieb's laboratory was in the main medical building. He drifted towards the distant medical campus. The few people who had met him were hurrying with midnight timidity. He entered the shadow of the anatomy building, grim as a barracks, still as the dead men lying up there in the dissecting room. Beyond him was the turreted bulk of the main medical building, a harsh and blurry mass, high up in its dark wall a single light. He started. The light had gone out abruptly, as though an agitated watcher were trying to hide from him. On the stone steps of the main medical, two minutes after appeared beneath the arc light, a tall figure, ascetic, self-contained, apart. His swart cheeks were gaunt, his nose high-bridged and thin. He did not hurry, like the belated homebodies. He was unconscious of the world. He looked at Martin and threw him. He moved away, 
muttering to himself, his shoulders stooped, his long hands clasped behind him. He was lost in the shadows, himself a shadow. He had worn the threadbare topcoat of a poor professor, yet Martin remembered him as wrapped in a black velvet cape. 